Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. On episode 12, we're going to be talking about local policymaking. And when I talk about local, I mean governmental, both cities and counties, and businesses. Now, most folks know that cities and counties can pass ordinances and resolutions to affect community health, as we recently discussed with Little Rock Mayor Frank Scott. But most don't realize that businesses, particularly when they work in alignment, can also impact the health of a community. Unfortunately, the ability of local policymakers to address health concerns in their communities is becoming increasingly restricted by legislative action at the state level. This type of legislative action is called preemption. Now, there are two common types of preemption. One is floor preemption. This is the type that localities prefer. And floor preemption means that a locality must do at least the minimum, but has the flexibility to do more. An example of that is in some states, localities can require employers to have a higher minimum wage than the state requires. In contrast, ceiling preemption prohibits localities from requiring anything more or different. Now, as it relates to our minimum wage example, in Arkansas, we have ceiling preemption. In other words, the state prohibits local governments from requiring a higher minimum wage than what the state requires. Preemptive measures on mask mandates and stay-at-home orders have been at the forefront of disagreements within states on how to address concentrated outbreaks of the coronavirus within communities. Some states, including Arkansas, are considering or have passed legislation restricting localities from mandating masks while in public, requiring vaccinations as a condition of employment, or requiring vaccine passports to patronize a business or attend an event. The preemptive actions as a reaction to the pandemic, I think, are a part of a broader pattern, at least in Arkansas, to limit local control. And they can have sweeping long-term consequences on communities and their ability to improve the health outcomes of their residents. Now, our focus today won't necessarily be about preemptive measures, but it's important to understand that concept when you want to engage in local advocacy to advance policy. And our guest today has the most experience of anyone I know in local policymaking. And she knows how to make it happen despite all of the challenges. She is Dr. Jen Connor, an associate professor at the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine based out of Arkansas State University, where she is also the deputy director of the Delta Population Health Institute. She has two master's degrees, one in applied psychology from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock and one in public health from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences College of Public Health, where she also got her doctorate, and the first I understand, in public health. And one of my favorite things about her is she grew up in Lake Village, Arkansas. She knows those Delta roads like the back of her hand. Welcome. Good to see you, Dr. Cotter. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Craig, for having me today. (laughs) Now, before we get to the more serious stuff, uh, 
I have to know what you do to take a mental break from being Dr. Connor and just focus on Jen. Well, first I would say uh, a mental health break. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I just say I, I love the outdoors. I mean, anything outdoors from cycling to hiking to kayaking and camping. Um, if you can do it outdoors, I am there. And so fun fact, yeah. um, before the pandemic, my husband and I actually completed the 50 States Challenge, oh, gosh. Uh, which meant we ran a marathon in all 50 states plus D.C. So I would say my- Sounds painful. (laughs) It was fun. (laughs) Um, I would say that my mental health break uh, before the pandemic then was um, running. We did that in a course of about two and a half years. Gosh. Yeah. But post-pandemic, my mental health breaks have, uh, I haven't been able to keep that that kind of training to be able to do marathons now. So um, we actually have the challenge of finishing the Washtal Trail. So it's 223 miles. We've uh, day hiked about 150 miles of it. So um, that's just kind of been the the mental health break is getting out and exploring our natural state. It sounds wonderful. I talk a lot of, on the show about the, my my treadmill excursions, but no more than about three to three or four or five miles. That's as far as I can do it. A marathon just sounds like you're you're hurting yourself. But uh, it's it's a challenge. I know it's yeah. a challenge. <laughs> what I understand, I, I will never know. But. So I asked this of all of our wonky guests. Um, what would you say? is your theme song. So I had to think about this, um, and I'll start by saying I'm a huge Texas Red Dirt music fan. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a genre of um, country music that comes out of Texas and Oklahoma, and there is a song by Reckless Kelly called Hit the Ground Running. Baby, I'm rolling all over America and when the sun comes up, honey, I'll be running when I hit the ground um, and I, I love this song because I played it before I um, ran every marathon. There's a, a lyric in there that says, um, I'm going out on the world. I'm going to run all over America. I was born to run, and I'm never going to settle down. <laughs> it says, when the sun comes up, I'll be running. I'll be running when I hit the ground. And I think that both professionally and personally, uh, like I said, I do enjoy running. But um my career has been running up and down the Delta and kind of the South Central and Southwest part of the state all the way over to DeQueen. And um, I don't want to settle down. I want to continue uh, this local work that I do, and I really am passionate and enjoy it. That's a good one. Hit That's the ground running. I don't, I don't know that song, so I'm going to have to listen to it now. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about your role at, uh, at the medical school and uh, the Delta Population Health Institute. Um, sure. Okay, so the Delta Population Health Institute is the community engagement uh, arm of NYITCOM. So that's the New York Institute of Technology, College of Osteopathic Medicine at A-State. So really long name. <laughs> um, and the Delta Population Health Institute was really launched um, to support our mission. And our mission is um, to be a med school that really services the Delta, our footprint mm-hmm. of where our school is located, uh, but also to fo- focus on social determinants of health, focus on population health, um, and really, uh, you know, we have a high percent of our match students that go into rural or family medicine. Mm-hmm. So really the mission of our school is that. And as the deputy director, uh, the Delta Population Health Institute has four pillars. Uh, our pillars of activity include education, research, policy, and community engagement. So um, again, my role is to support all of our activities across the four pillars. And I think some of your questions later on go into each of those and what we do. So um, I, I've been there since October 2019. And 
um, have been proud to say we have been servicing the Delta, especially through the pandemic. And the school's been around just a little bit longer than that, or is it's three or four years? Yeah, we graduated our first class yeah, yeah. last year, um, and so uh, it was unfortunate that it happened right during the pandemic, yeah. <laughs> our first graduating class. Uh, so we do plan to, of course, graduate our second class. So um, we've been around, I think it's like f- uh, five years. Okay. And the, and the osteopathic is the 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 other med school, the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, at least, there was the academic medical center for forever until NYIT came yeah, along. Yeah, we were and the second the, medical the, school. The Fort Smith osteopathic mm-hmm. school. That's an allopathic school. And there... I shouldn't even ask this question because you probably are not prepared for it. But there's a little bit of a difference there. Yeah. So the osteopathic um, medicine has a couple of tenets to it, which basically um, talks about the mind, body and spirit. So while we um, do focus on the clinical aspects, it's also looking again, as I said, social determinants, the Mm -hmm. mind, the body, the spirit. How does all of that come together? And really realizing that um, the context in which we live, work and play really influences our health outcome. So it's a very holistic approach of thinking about, um, you know, skeletally, how are we put together? Um, internally, how are processes and organs working? Uh, but more holistically, um, how do we function as a patient in our, our real world in our community? So y'all, and I say y'all, because we're talking about the Delta, have been working on vaccinating uh, the natural state with a mobile unit. Is that right? That is correct. So we have um, a mobile medical unit. It's called the Delta Care of Van. <laughs> the Care of Van. Very <laughs> clever. Um, so, uh, and in response to the pandemic, and I should say prior to the pandemic, the Care of Van actually traversed up and down the Delta um, to really look for gaps in services. Uh, we work with local providers and, and small communities and really, you know, see what the service base is that we can offer. And um, so, during as the pandemic was unfolding, again, prior to that, we were doing blood pressure screenings, glucose mm-hmm. screenings, you know, just um, providing basic preventative services. So we had to pivot a little bit and think about um, what our mobile mu- mobile medical unit was going to be used for. And we started out actually by doing COVID-19 testing. So we worked in partnership with the Arkansas Minority Health Commission. Uh, we did about 700 tests up and down the Delta. And these were very small communities that perhaps didn't have mm-hmm. access. So uh, we finished up our testing, and although we still do it, most of our work now has shifted to vaccines. So we've given close to 1,000 up and down the Delta on our mobile medical unit, yes. (laughs) And you put needles in arms yourself. We are putting needles (laughs) in arms. And um, it's quite the operation. I mean, we can have up to 25 or 30 um, staff that come with us, and that includes our medical students who are actually putting shots in arms. Um, That includes our IT staff that is actually real time putting that into WebIZ. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes um, our physicians, again, that are overseeing our students, and of course, our Delta population um, staff that are doing a lot of the administrative work. So we've hit towns like Elaine, population mm-hmm. 636, yeah. <laughs> all the way up Osceola, Blyville, um, Marvel, just down the Delta, um, and realizing that these are areas where a high percentage of the population don't have cars. Yeah. So perhaps like, if you just take Philadelphia, County. Um, there may be vaccine clinics happening in Helena, West Helena, but if you are in Elaine or Marvel, you don't have transportation. You might sure. not even be able to go into the county. So we've really just been working with the Department of Health, Minority Health Commission, and seeing, again, where that gap service is and being able to provide vaccines. Okay, great. So 
what what has if anything surprised you about your work during the pandemic and particularly the response from people in the delta well, um, I'm not surprised because I know I've been working in the Delta for a really long time. Um, but there was, uh, there's been great response. I mean, we were able to work with the Arkansas Black Mayors Association, which is highly represented in the Delta when the pandemic first hit. We put on webinars, um, you know, myth busters, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, just getting information out. And local communities along the Delta and even over to the Southwest were just very receptive, very much like, can you translate this highly technical COVID information (laughs) um, into what we can understand? And then, in fact, um, turn around and tell our community members, right? So the leadership of the communities uh, in the Delta were just super responsive. Um, we've taken a very authentic approach. We've been working with faith-based organizations, community-based organizations. Very important, yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of our testing at food pantries. So we knew that this was a place where, again, um, folks were coming, um, for other services. And so we just, you know, added the fact that they could get a vaccine or they could get, um, a a COVID-19 test if Mm -hmm. they needed to. So, um, Everyone has been just super responsive. I think it's the authentic approach where there's trust and transparency in the work that we're doing. Um, And um, even when there's been hesitancy, whether it's vaccine hesitancy or hesitancy against the realness of Mm -hmm. COVID-19, we've just been able to work through trusted sources. We we work with the Arkansas Community Health Workers Association. So again, having those community health workers on the van with us Mm -hmm. um, and being able to um, just sort through, uh, again, highly technical information, translate that down, um, look at the literacy of the population that we're trying to reach, uh, look at the hard to reach populations um, one of my favorite stories, and we'll move on, is uh, we just worked with D-Line Farms. And so there were um, over 20 migrant farm workers that we were able to vaccinate. Wow. Yeah. And they had tested with us earlier in uh-huh. the fall after an exposure. So just seeing the responsive uh, responsiveness of all types of people um, along the Delta, including our producers and agriculture, all the way down to our leaders. That's great. That's great. So... I- I talked about preemption during the intro, and I, we're not going to focus on it, but I did want to ask you a question. Um, have you have you seen the impact of, of state preemption um, on on any of the work that you've done? So I think you mentioned it, I mean, early on as we were coming through the mask mandate, I think, you know, local government was trying to, you know, figure out what role um, they could do before we passed our statewide um, mask mandate. But I also think as we talk about built environment, um, when we talk about improving parks and sidewalks and walkability Mm -hmm. and connectivity, I think there is uh, just a little disconnect sometimes of, um, you know, if we want to pass a complete street policy, for example, Um, streets sometimes can be local that also intersect with the major highway, which is Department of Transportation. So we do see, I think, a little bit um, when we talk about um, connectivity that, um, you know, there's rules of which we have to follow by the state that localities just can't make those health improvements because there's, you know, um, limitations on what they're able to do as we intersect with a major, you know, highway. Yeah, yeah. So... What has been your most successful local policymaking effort? So I would say um, it, this goes to Camden, <laughs> Camden, Arkansas. Near and dear to my heart. I man. know, right? Um, so Camden had formed the um, 
the Hope Commission, and that was a, a health coalition that was really uh, sanctioned by the county and the city. Uh, it was a local health policy board, if you will. And um, I think one of our successes was being able to come in and provide technical assistance about how to make local policy, mm-hmm. how to look at um, policy, uh, I guess, with system and environmental change as well. So that whole PSE component of it. And um, and then work on some of the trace. So part of what we wanted to do was connect assets along the trace. Um, really, and the traces. Imp- oh, the traces. Um, it's a built environment project. It's a trail that runs along, sorry, the city. Okay. Um, so uh, a huge asset. Folks use it to be able to increase their physical activity. But there were schools that were located on the trace. And Uh. so how were we able to do outdoor classrooms, for example? Um, How were we able to put gardens so that we could along the trace so that we could increase um, opportunity for um, healthy food options. And so um, I think just establishing a a local health policy board that had authority um, and had priority to make uh, Camden and Washtenaw County a little healthier, I would say that was probably um, a model practice and something that we're looking at doing across the state. And making the connectivity at the the local level, just within the community, but then I know you're you're a big advocate of making that connectivity to the state as well. Absolutely. So, um, so we worked with the Department of Transportation to put in um, one of the things that Camden residents said is they love doing the trace, but there were um, places on the trace where they had to cross busy highways or mm. intersections that they didn't feel safe. So we worked with the Department of Transportation to put in flashing beacons mm. um, as part of uh, the trace project. So again, identifying a, a healthy asset like the trace, but identifying safety concerns that might be prohibitive of increasing um, healthy opportunities and then working both at the state and local level to make those changes. Great, great. So we've talked about the success, but I know there's a lot of hardships, right? So what's been the most challenging part of your local efforts? So I think the challenge is, um, and and I'll say funding, uh, but I'll also caveat that by saying funding is not always necessary. Uh, There's a lot of sweat equity. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of volunteerism. There's a lot of donations that goes into the programming that we do at the local level. But I say funding in the sense that we, the Delta tends to have a declining population, declining tax base. There's infrastructure needs. So here I am as a, you know, a local uh, mayor and I'm struggling between building up a park system and keeping my sewer system going. (laughs) Right. Um, So it's very hard. And I think one of the challenges um, that we face a lot is just the crumbling infrastructure. Um, We have buildings that are vacant in downtown in most of our, you know, Delta communities. So how do we repurpose those? And, uh, you know, repurposing requires investment. And we don't always have the investments, especially if they're not on a historical registry or something like that. So um, I think we've been successful in being able to leverage a lot of funding sources together or change the narrative around outcomes in the Delta. And by that, I mean... Um, you know, we're probably not going to recruit a large company, you know, into the Delta. But how can we take the assets that we have of the community and turn that around to economic um, 
and make it economically viable for the community. So, for example, we have a couple of uh, success stories of commercial kitchens where we have local folks that love to cook. Let's put food entrepreneurship and hopefully healthy food mm-hmm. as a as an option for that. It's and, hard in the Delta. Right? It's very hard, but it's it's, it's doable. <laughs> um, and and that really leads to the fact that we have been able to do nutrition education and food demos where we can show. For yams, you can trade out the brown sugar for applesauce and and have some of the same, you know, taste and flavor. So I think there are examples of where um, even even in the face of uh, crumbling infrastructure and lost tax base that we've been able to generate revenue um, and use um, entrepreneurial spirit to get the community going. So where's the low hanging fruit here? So I think the low-hanging fruit, one of the places that I always start is just uh, bringing a coalition together, bringing um, all parts of the community together and just saying, starting with some asset maps. What do we have? Yeah. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trained up, so data always <laughs> drives and best practices drive a lot of what we do. And so we start with um, a lot of the data and best practices and just say, where's our baseline? Where, where can we start? Yeah. Um, and then from there, so building that, that health coalition, that economic development coalition that, that can really say, um, what do we have inside before we start looking outside? And so we start there, uh, you know, some easy low-hanging fruit, of course, is the HEAL resolutions, healthy eating, active living resolutions, which just basically says, uh, you know, when city council comes together and we look at budget, we're going to see how, you know, that we can make health a priority. Uh, Health and all policy is another option. We do a lot of training around health and all policy, uh, which basically means, you know, for anything that comes before the council, we'll consider health as part of our decision making. So I think those are the low hanging fruit. And I'll end with youth engagement. So along the Delta, a lot of what we see is um, lack of civic engagement in both in youth and adults. Um, and, uh, we've got to just spur and generate that, you know, momentum among the youth, uh, and have them engaged. So we actually have programs like HYPE, which is Healthy Youth Empowerment, and, um, that gives students the ability to do decision-making along with, uh, the adults. And that really looks at what projects can they take on as individuals to do policy system and environment change. So one of my favorite low hanging fruit with the youth is to do walk audits. And so trust me, they see a lot more on walk (laughs) audits than adults ever will. Um, and, uh, and that gives them the opportunity to come to council, present their results. So it takes them through that whole policy development process. And the walk audit is? So walk audit is looking for, um, again, mobility issues. So if I am a senior citizen on a walker or I'm a mom with a baby stroller, like how conducive is my neighborhood or my area in my community to walk? Um, AARP has some excellent tools um, with how to do walk audits. And so it's basically just looking at, again, that infrastructure, the built environment, um, and saying, uh, you know, how can I just make um, my community a little more pleasant? Okay, great. So, so you've got somebody who is in a city, a city, community. You talk about city in a town, <laughs> <laughs> in a little hollow <laughs> somewhere, and they're enthused about making something happen. What advice would you give them to start their local policy making efforts? Uh, just start, honestly. Um, just uh, 
if you've got the motivation, um, there's plenty of providers of technical assistance. And so it's really just as a community coming together and deciding health will be a priority. So it's it's really the commitment. That's where we start. Um, and uh, I, I always kind of call it the brand identity. So with any of the health initiatives that I do, we always brand it. We always come up with some logo. Um, it needs to be a household name. And so um, I also say, you know, let's let's just start somewhere and get a small win. And then that win can lead to another. And it's just sort of this ripple effect. Um, and that may be as simple. And this happened in, in one community where we power washed the sidewalks. That's a free, simple little thing. But when we talk to community residents, uh, it, you know, it just wasn't conducive and opening to go and walk uh, in the neighborhoods. So we power washed for months. <laughs> but there was sidewalks under there and it just aesthetically made it more pleasing. Um, and uh, you're from the arts. One of, you know, some of the low hanging fruit was simply painting a mural yeah. that showed the food system of the community. So again, a, a lot of uh, folks don't know where their food comes from. If you're not from an agricultural background, you may not understand the growing process. So we just used a mural to talk about the food system in the community. And mm. So it's, it can be super simple. Yeah, just get started. Just get started. So, all right, now I asked about your own theme song, but um, I want to ask about the Population Health Institute uh, and the staff. I know they've got some ideas about this, but what would the theme song be of the Delta Population Health Institute? So this was a hard one, and again, we did, uh, we did come together. We had everything from on the road again because literally we leave at 5:30 in the morning we get back at 8:30 at night when we go to some of the most uh rural areas of the state uh we had a couple throw out we are the world i thought that was great uh you know because that song really talks about coming together and mm -hmm. uh just looking out for each other and i think that's I think that's what's happened both at the Delta Population Health Institute, but also inside of our Delta communities. Um, through this pandemic, we've literally just been able to say, what are the needs? Where are the gaps? And then the tenacity of this team, you know, is just uh, unremarkable. Like one of the best teams I've ever worked with, with being able to figure it out. So uh, I think we're going to go with We Are the World. We Are the World. <laughs> and now everybody's like singing <laughs> in know, their right? head. We Are the World. <laughs> Yeah. All right. This is my final question. Okay. Um, I want to know what you're most proud of in your career. Um, this one is hard, too. So I think my proudest moment, and I, I'm sad that you didn't give me two because <laughs> I have, you know, one really local and one really state-based policy, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I think I have to go with um, the Robert Wood Johnson Culture of Health uh, uh award that the town of Lake Village was a finalist for. So if you're not familiar with the RWJL, uh, they, they have this framework uh, that talks about culture of health. And it's not it's four prong. It's not just about the coalitions and the collaborations that are needed, but it's talking about how do we integrate everything from the library and the bank, mm -hmm. you know, and hair salons and, and our hospital systems and our healthcare systems um, to having the lens of health equity. So um, literally over the course of about eight to nine years, I worked intensively uh, with Lake Village. And yes, it happens to be my hometown, <laughs> but it wasn't the only community I worked with. Um, but we were able to uh, apply for and make the 
final, I think, eight. It's like basketball. Like <laughs> um, the final cut uh, for the Robert Wood Johnson uh, Culture of Health Award. And I think that was my proudest moment because it symbolized that we had been inclusive, that we were really looking at the lens of health equity, that we made policy system and environment change, and that sustainability was laid on top of it. So um, I'm proud to say that most of the initiatives, even though I don't live in my hometown anymore, are still there. And I think that really speaks to um, when sustainability is put on the front end of thinking about, you know, grant money comes and goes, programs come and go. Um, But this is about building a a culture of health, a mindset, a social movement that says we want the next generation of folks that grow up in Lake Village to be healthy. And how are we going to do that? That's great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Connor. And I have to say um, one little final thing for uh, someone from Arkansas, your choice of a, of a Texas based song <laughs> uh, was a little shocking, but I'm sure it's wonderful. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to give it a listen. I know. I know. <laughs> I hit the ground running. I, I married an LSU grad that has Texas ties too. So it, it runs deep apparently. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And, uh, um, sharing about local policymaking and your successes and all the challenges. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Wonks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode, and again, thanks for listening.